Hey guys, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Bryn. I'm Will, and today we're thrilled to have Stephen Walt with us. Stephen is the Robert and Renee Belfer Professor of International Affairs at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. His books include The Origin of Alliances, Taming American Power, The Israel Lobby and U.S. Foreign Policy, and a forthcoming one about why U.S. foreign policy keeps failing. Thank you so much for joining us, Stephen. One of the questions we like to ask our guests is to talk about an inflection point, a place where they had to pivot or adjust in their career or personal lives. Could you share such a moment with us? Um, I could probably share a number of them, but uh, the one that leaps to mind most immediately was uh, the end of my freshman year in college. Uh, I had started at Stanford uh, as a chemistry major, uh, intended to uh, get a chemistry degree and then go on and do graduate work in biochemistry, get a PhD and do uh, research. I'd always been sort of a science nerd. Um, and uh, it was pretty clear as I ended my freshman year that God had not put me on the planet to be a brilliant uh, world-class biochemist. I was having all sorts of trouble with the classes. I got mononucleosis. It was sort of a, uh, a really uh, difficult uh, period. And I, at that point, I sort of had a, a stock taking and decided that I didn't want to keep pursuing what I had been doing. And I shifted to what had been my second love, uh, which was history. Um, and within a year or so, realized that the part of history that I really wanted to do was international history, um, international relations. And Stanford had an international relations program as an undergraduate. I majored in that and you know, loved it sort of from the, from the very beginning. Um, and it was very rewarding. But if, if I sort of look at the various trajectories I might have been on, that's a, a one where I clearly sort of shifted in a direction. And by the time I was ending my junior year, you know, I knew I wanted to go to graduate school. I knew I wanted to get a PhD. I knew I wanted to teach and do research at a university. And I guess I am one of those rare people who sort of had, got, had figured out by the time I was 20 or 21 what I wanted to do and have been fortunate enough to have the opportunity to do it ever since. So as a young Stephen Walt, when you pivoted from chemistry to learning about history and international relations, when would you say you solidified your belief in realism, which is the school of international relations that you've now come to dominate as an academic? Um, the, uh, I think that the realist perspective just made sense to me when I first started studying it. So you know, when you're undergraduate, I mean, I remember reading Morgenthau, um, and I was confused by a lot of Morgenthau, because a lot of Morgenthau is confusing. Um, but the basic idea that, you know, it states that what's matter and balances of power are critical, um, that just seemed intuitively obvious. Uh, and in the very first international relations course I ever took, uh, we read Man, the State, and War, uh, this classic by Ken Waltz. And I remember just thinking, you know, th this was a, a absolutely brilliant book. Um, and the sensibility, the way of thinking about uh, international problems uh, really appealed to me. Um, several years later, I ended up going to Berkeley I, and chose Berkeley in part because Waltz was there. Um, and again, when I started taking classes uh, with him, um, and he eventually was the chair of my dissertation, it was clear just that way of thinking about how international politics works fit my own reading of history, my own sense of most of how the world works. So it, it didn't involve a lot of intellectual adjustment. It just seemed intuitively obvious. Mm -hmm. I'm always interested in how people formulate their political views. I guess your identity as a realist isn't necessarily a political view, but what does any of that stem from where you grew up, your family, your parents? 
Um, no, not really. Um, you know, my my family. Uh, uh, my father's a physicist, uh, but and and um, he's very conservative, uh, lifelong Republican. Well, I was actually a registered Republican until I think 1980. I think Ronald Reagan was actually the president. I was I was a, a true Reagan Democrat. That is to say, Reagan turned me into a Democrat. Um, uh, for a variety of different reasons. Um, so my father and I are, are at odds on a, a lot of uh, political questions. Um, I don't think my um, I don't think my political views um, are driven heavily uh, by my sort of more academic or scholarly views, although it's true that I've tended to be um, my my sympathy for uh, let's call it the Democratic Party was initially more, uh, based on uh, on where I thought foreign policy was going, right? so the areas that I knew about, rather than you know my knowledge of say domestic policy or what was going on, because I didn't know very much about those things uh, early on, having having not really studied them. Uh, now I tend to have a slightly more jaundiced view of both political parties, but that just comes with age. You mentioned the intersection of domestic politics and foreign policy there, especially partisan politics. And you wrote recently in uh, Foreign Policy magazine, just earlier this week actually, that the most striking thing about Trump's impact on U.S. foreign policy is how little has actually changed. Do you think that there are any policies on the horizon that might uh, Trump might affect U.S. grand strategy in? Or do you see this presidency, as long as it lasts, being one that will perpetuate the status quo? Um, well, I bet that uh, you'll see more of the status quo uh, continuing, that, that Trump has, uh, despite all of the rhetorical flourishes and what he promised during the campaign, has not, in fact, altered U.S. policy in many key areas of foreign affairs uh, nearly as much as he promised to. And in some respects, the foreign policy establishment really has uh, reined him in. But there are still uh, you know, some open questions. It's, after all, it's only been a year. Uh, one quarter of his anticipated first term. So we still don't know whether or not at some point he will embrace uh, a really sort of aggressively protectionist foreign economic policy. He has threatened to do so in various ways. He has yet to deliver on any of that, but he still might. He might get frustrated with, say, the NAFTA negotiations and just say, we're out of here, despite the fact that much of the Republican establishment, not just Democrats, much of the Republican establishment, and certainly the American business community has said, you know, please don't. He still, he still might. So that would be one area. Um, second, it is impossible to know um, whether uh, his rather bellicose approach to North Korea is a bargaining tactic, essentially a way of trying to get North Korea to start movement uh, diplomatically, or whether or not they are genuinely contemplating some sort of military action. Um, I, I have trouble believing it is the latter because I don't think there are attractive military options, but I can't completely rule out the possibility. Um, so, for example, last week when it was learned that the uh, Trump administration's nominee uh, to, or expected nominee to be ambassador to South Korea, Victor Cha, uh, had basically withdrawn from consideration or been withdrawn from consideration because he'd made it clear he opposed any kind of military action against uh, uh, North Korea. You know, that you wonder what that actually means. Is this another way of sort of signaling we're really serious? Or is that a sign that we are, in fact, uh, really serious? So there are still some places that Trump could do various things um, that would be, I think, more of a departure from what past American presidents have done. 
I think your last answer really showed just how tied up your work is in American politics. What was your decision to not base yourself in D.C.? From what I can tell, over the course of your professional life, you've been based outside of D.C. for the most part. What informed that decision? Why did you choose that? Um, well, there, there wasn't a conscious decision per se. Um, I did uh, spend some summers when I was in graduate school and one year, actually, in the course of graduate school working for a think tank in Washington. And I'd spent a year as a guest scholar at the Brookings Institution and another year as an associate at the Carnegie Endowment, two rather well-known think tanks uh, in Washington. So I've had my moments, you know, sort of spent time observing the Washington scene. And I would have liked um, at some point in my career to have done an actual turn in government, to do uh, a year or two of public service the way many academics do at one point or another. Uh, early on, I, I really just wanted to focus on my academic work and my academic career. I've gotten more interested and more engaged in policy questions, you know, over time. Um, but then, um, you know, as you probably know from my uh, my bio, uh, I wrote a very controversial book in 2007, uh, and article beforehand with John Mearsheimer on the Israel lobby. And we knew when we did that research that 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 pretty much eliminated any possibility that either of us was ever going to be considered for a serious policymaking position. It would just be too controversial. There'd be too much opposition to it. So I knew at that point, you talk about another inflection point, that I was moving in a different direction. Fortunately, I, you know, at that point was a tenured professor at Harvard. I had a well-established academic reputation. It was not an enormous uh, career risk, but it did close some doors uh, or some forego some opportunities that I would have liked to have been able to pursue. You mentioned uh, that one of the places in your career where you really cut against the dominant view among American policymakers was when you wrote about the Israel lobby. Another one that you wrote about in 2010 that might be a kind of unpopular opinion is when you wrote in Foreign Policy magazine that cyber is a classic opportunity for threat inflation and that issues of cybersecurity, uh, with regards to them, the threat is being overstated. Few things have happened uh, in cyber since then. Among them include Russia's interference in the 2016 election and expectation that they might use uh, cyber means to do that again in the 2018 midterms. In 2016, the U.S. federal government spent more on cybersecurity than it did on maintaining its nuclear weapons. Uh, every single year since 2013, the former director of national intelligence, James Clapper, ranked cybersecurity as the number one national threat to the United States. Have any of the developments since you said that uh, make you backtrack on that opinion, or do you still feel like cyber is an overhyped threat to the um, United States? Um, yeah, I, I still think it is overhyped, but that doesn't mean it's not a problem, right? The, um, you know, I think I take the cybersecurity issue more seriously than I did 10 years ago, in part because of the incidents uh, you name, but it still leaves as an open question whether or not we have exaggerated the danger or whether we tend to talk about it in the most extreme and, and lurid terms. And the point I was making in the original foreign policy piece, and I've made in subsequent areas, is that cyber happens to be one of those domains where it's extremely difficult to know exactly what, how serious the problem really is, how serious the danger is. First of all, you have to have a certain degree of technical knowledge just to understand how vulnerable a particular network might be. Um, and if, if, you were ha if you need to have that expertise and that expertise is not widely distributed, it's easy for people to come in and say, look, I'm an expert here. Trust me. It's really, really bad. Um, I think that uh, still goes on to some degree in the cyber realm. 
Second thing, one of the things I find striking about it is that when you think about it, the probably the most consequential use of digital technology in terms of our politics has not been any of the sort of extreme high-tech hackers, you know, getting in uh, and shutting down the power grid or crashing Wall Street or launching an unauthorized nuclear weapon or all of the stuff that you would write a Hollywood screenplay about. What was the most, probably the most consequential one? I don't even think it was the hack of the um, Democratic National Committee. I think it was arguably the use of uh, social media, Facebook and Twitter, by various uh, foreign entities, probably mostly from Russia, to try and shape opinions, these you know, sort of phony accounts. When you think about it, that wasn't sophisticated at all. That didn't involve an army of really genius hackers. That just involved using an existing social media platform uh, and, uh, and taking advantage of a number of gullible Americans. And the interesting thing about that is I think you can go back and look at all of the writing about cybersecurity from 2005 onward, and nobody would have said the real problem here is that a bunch of people are going to create phony accounts on Facebook and start polluting our national debate. Right? So in a funny way, the things we were worried about and the things we had devoted billions of dollars to trying to deal with were not perhaps what the real problem um, actually was. So, you know, again, I do, I do take the cyber area uh, seriously, and I have colleagues who take it much more seriously than I do, but I also think it is an area, as in many areas of American national security, where we tend to treat something that's a serious problem as though it is, you know, uh, an existential danger. I'm really interested in um, your, what you said about Edward Snowden and leakers. I know it's only a little bit tangentially related to cybersecurity, but you said that you believe that Snowden should have been pardoned. What is your rationale for that? What do you think about leakers in general, and what's the line between a patriot and a traitor? Um, well, first of all, it's, uh, the line between patriots and traitors is going to be one that we're not all going to agree on. Um, and I think in the case of Snowden, um, it's clear that he broke the law. Um, and therefore, he merits a pardon. I mean, you have to do what, what you're basically doing when you pardon someone. He d clearly did not do it for personal gain. It wasn't that he sold the intelligence to, you know, China or North Korea or Russia in order to uh, get paid or, or anything like that. He did it um, clearly out of uh, his own sense that the American people were being deceived about what was going on um, with. Uh, illegal surveillance being conducted by the National Security Agency and that therefore the American people had a right to know. So I think of him in, in very much the same place as someone like Daniel Ellsberg who leaked the Pentagon uh, papers as well. The question is again not being whether they broke the law but whether or not what they did was ultimately to the benefit of the country or not. Now reasonable people disagree on that. So there will be people who will say that you know what Snowden released was actually uh, of sufficient value to some of our adversaries that, you know, we should lock him up and throw away the key, whatever. There are other people know, in fact, what he was doing was identifying a potential danger to liberties here at home, and therefore um, he should be pardoned for it because he was not, he, was, he did something with the best of intentions, the uh, motives. So for that reason, I, I believed, uh, in fact, um, he should have been pardoned. I also thought, and this is a more cynical argument, was that that if you were worried about sort of Snowden as a symbol, um, the easiest way to do that was simply pardon 
the guy. And he ceases to be a, a sort of controversial figure. It ceases to be a controversial issue. Um, you know, thank you very much. Uh, you're, you're free to come home and leave it at that. But I recognize this is a, a controversial view, and there are people, friends of mine, who disagree with me on that. I think one of the main ways that the public knows about the Snowden story now is from that movie that came out about him last year. Hmm. What did you think of that movie? Did you think it I was didn't a fair portrayal? Uh, no, I didn't see it, so I, <laughs> I can't comment on it one way or the other. Uh, so Snowden, for you at least, is one of those cases where he falls on the patriot side of the fine line between patriot and traitor. Would you say that uh, WikiLeaks, as you wrote in 2010, actually, again, are on balance performing a valuable service in light of their activity during the 2016 election cycle are still an organization that falls on the patriot side? Or have you slid them over after their recent activities? Um, I haven't, you know, I haven't thought about this really much, but I think like a number of other people, um, my view of WikiLeaks and my view of uh, Julian Assange has evolved a little bit. Um, my sense back in 2010 uh, was very much driven by the sense that um, secrecy had really gotten out of control here in the United States, and in particular, it was making it extremely difficult to hold government officials accountable, um, and that account the lack of accountability within our politics and within the foreign policy world was increasingly problematic. So it didn't matter how badly you screwed up in a position of authority. Um, you could get rewarded. Uh, you'd get your next job. You never uh, were held to account one way or the other. I think that was especially true in the intelligence world because, of course, so much of it was so shadowy and people didn't, didn't know very much about it. And so I felt uh, initially that uh, by bringing a lot of what the U.S. government and other governments were doing um, bringing that to light was a useful thing. Um, and that if more government officials had to think about, um, gee, you know, what I'm doing here behind the scenes might in fact get public and relatively soon, maybe I should rethink that. Uh, you know, back when I was a dean, we used to occasionally ask ourselves, how are we going to feel about this if it ends up on the front page of the Boston Globe? And that was usually a sign that whatever it was we were thinking about was maybe not such a hot idea. That's my initial thought on WikiLeaks, and um, and I thought on balance, although there's downsides to that, I thought on balance um, it wasn't a bad thing. Now, I think over time, um, for a variety of reasons, and especially uh, Mr. Assange in particular, um, have evolved kind of the wrong way. I, I no longer um, think he's as detached a figure, I guess, politically, as I, as I once did. Um, some of that may be, uh, you know, sort of how he's evolved psychologically, given the ordeal he's uh, gone through. And it can't be easy to be, you know, cooped up in the Ecuadorian embassy for years on end. Um, and I think it, it would challenge all of us to sort of be in that set of circumstances and not begin to lose our bearings uh, to some degree. And... Um, both some of the things he has said subsequently and the role they may have played um, in the, the DNC hack, et cetera, um, you know, I think has put it in a slightly different category uh, category for me. So, no, I don't necessarily view them as, as an admirable an organization. But I will say this. I do think we would still be better off with far greater transparency uh, between with what a government's doing. I wish, I wish the American people knew much more about what their government was actually doing on a 24-7 basis. 
Uh, I think that, that there are obviously some things that we are better off um, not having in the public domain for all the obvious security uh, reasons. But there is a great many secrets being kept that are not being kept to make us safer, but they're being kept because it's more efficient or because it uh, makes it harder for people to evaluate and criticize whether a policy is working or not. To just give you one obvious example, you know, the, uh, the military has recently started classifying a lot of performance data about the Afghan army in Afghanistan. Even at a moment where they're telling us that things are in, we've turned the corner, we're finally, you know, light at the end of the tunnel, which they've said, of course, many times before. But, oh, we're not going to give you any information about this anymore. This is not a good sign. Right. And so I'm still, I guess, in general, a fan of much greater transparency on national security matters, uh, even if my views on WikiLeaks have changed. So throughout this conversation, we've touched upon a lot of threats to American power. In your opinion, what is the greatest threat to American power today? Oh, um, I think uh, overwhelmingly the greatest threat to the United States today is internal. Um, it's the fact that we have a, a deeply polarized political system. Um, we have, I believe, a one party, uh, uh, the Republican Party, that has uh, gone off the deep end uh, in ways that uh, make it unrecognizable from the Republican Party I was a member of, you know, 30 year, years or so ago. Um, I believe the role that uh, money now plays in American politics, the ability of wealthy individuals to pour millions of dollars into shaping uh, electoral outcomes uh, is uh, hugely corrosive. Um, among other things, it attracts the worst sort of people into uh, public life. Right? Basically, if you want to be successful in politics now, you have to be the kind of person who will do anything for money. <laughs> and, and you understand that getting in, well, surprise, surprise, you end up with the worst sorts of of people in politics. And as a result, you can't get this wonderful republic of ours to respond in any kind of intelligent or sensible way to a series of rather obvious problems that need to be addressed, whether it's, you know, how to deal with chronic budget deficits, how to deal with infrastructure that's falling apart, how to deal with wars that can't be won that we keep fighting, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so although I believe there are external dangers and challenges that the United States faces. I am far more worried about the condition of the political system here at home than I am about any particular foreign adversary or clever rival who's going to do something uh, amazing and we're all going to wake up uh, one day in much worse shape. We've only got time for one more question, which is the last question we ask all of our guests. What's your personal definition of success and how would you help students define success for themselves? Um, I think... Uh, the, the best definition of success is uh, to have to be able to do an activity uh, that you uh, genuinely enjoy and you consider to be of value uh, to yourself and to others and to then feel like you've done that job uh, performed that well um, it's a sense of of you know, sort of liking what you do and feeling that you do it reasonably well um, you know, I've been incredibly fortunate that I, I found a realm of activity that I've found, you know, fascinating for 30 or 40 years. I had enormous good fortune along the way, lots of little opportunities that bounced my way in particular forms. I just got lucky. Uh, I think I was, you know, I worked hard and I had talent, but uh, a lot of this was uh, luck as well. 
that I've been able to do it. Um, and looking back, I can look at a whole series of things and say, you know, I think I did that reasonably well. I think that you know, I made, made a contribution there. So I guess it's, you know, feeling a, a sense of satisfaction that what you did was enjoyable but also meaningful uh, as well. I wasn't very articulate, but that's sort of how I feel about it. Unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today. Thanks, Stephen, for joining us. And to all of our listeners, remember to stay hungry. <laughs>